are back with an all do keep it. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm Louis Vertelic, and already since you're going at half speed, it seems to have been a longish weekend for you. You know, a, a, so a you lot can of hear food, it? a yeah, lot of food, uh-huh. a lot of um, revelry. Yeah. A lot of um, tating around, as it were. Oh, you're getting me crazy? Yeah, listen, I'm a McRacist, okay? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I am. I uh, heard a lot of Tate McRae music over the weekend because I was uh, in Puerto Vallarta and one of my housemates, Justin, decided to be a just complete McRae propagandist the entire time like we would be eating dinner and he'd be like has anybody heard the new tate mccray song and it was like you have you you've heard of one musical artist um uh, i enjoy her i enjoy that we have an artist whose like whole thing is like really athletic dance i call her jenna mm-hmm. dewan tate mccray you know what i'm saying <laughs> that's a that's a good reference that's a good she is very she is very athletic she seems like she could guest appear on Buffy. Yes, precisely. With, with like all the like halters and stuff they wore. Yeah. Um, I'm really loving the vibe of dancing, breathy vocals, Sean Bankhead's choreography at the Billboard Music Awards. It's giving us early Britney. And that's really just all I think the gays have ever wanted. They're constantly talking about Britney. They were constantly talking about Britney's memoir. And I think that we're we're ready to let Britney, you know, be an adult now. And let 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 someone else give some pop vocals, almost pop vocals, and some dancing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, she does sound like she's playing a a, a shy Disney character all the time. Like the uh <laughs> I don't know if that's quite singing. But um, also, I have to say, I am mesmerized by how fucking young this person is, too. She's 20, 20. years old. And she's already, she was like, uh, she got third on So You Think You Can Dance, which is where. Next she, Generation. Yes. Um, and I think the first Canadian to land in the top three. I don't know if that's, like, should she be on Canadian money? I have no idea. But, um, <laughs> uh, you no, know, the SNL performance was good. Um, I, I mean, I'll say this. People are heralding her as like, oh, finally dance is back in pop. Not that it completely went away, but I do think it's important that we have a range of pop stars who bring different things specifically as it pertains to like what we'll see from them at an award show. So you get the pop stars who have the vocals, you get the pop stars who bring the dance moves. Yes, exactly. Um, So um, it's nice that we're re-diversifying because once upon a time, like, you know, if if the year was 1990, basically everybody was Tate McRae in terms of like you had to bring Mm -hmm. all this choreography you had to bring, you know, a certain kind of vocal styling. You know, everybody was kind of Paula Abdul once upon a time. And now we don't really have that as much anymore. And I like that we are able to delineate the pop and the R&B girls a bit more now because there was a lot of chatter online about how, well, we already have these pop girls with Victoria Monet, with Normani, with Tanache. It was like, first of all, we don't even have Normani. She's not even in the building. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we but, lost track of her. Yeah. But Victoria and uh, Tanache, like, they're doing R&B specifically, mm. you know, and they don't, none of their songs like move over into the pop lane. I think we should be able to also be like, this is R&B, this is pop. And sometimes people do cross back and forth. Motivation was a pop song, you know, mm. uh, but Normani doesn't seem to want to release pop music. So. Precisely. Or, yeah, music, really. Um, uh, 
Categorically, I'm excited for Tate McRae. I am expecting a little more X Factor in the future, though. Like when I mm. listen to Greedy, I don't feel like it's teaming with a POV, so to speak, other than mm. I can sense the, the songwriters behind it. And maybe it was shopped to a bunch of other people for, before it got to her. Yeah. But I don't well, know. it is Ryan's header. Yeah. See, and, that's what I mean. And we, and, and we know what he does. Yeah. <laughs> Let us not forget um, the Kelly Clarkson Beyonce debacle. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. Legendary. Yeah. <laughs> The exact same fucking song. Right. Um, yeah, it feels shopped around. I mean, listen, hopefully she can link up with one of the Swedes because that, that's right. really when we get it going. Okay, she needs a baby one more time. She needs a sometimes. That, those are POVs in pop music. Even Genie in a Bottle, you know? Like, rub me the right way. I think Genie in a Bottle is her best song. I've long said that. It's like both a pop song and like a Tony Braxton R&B song put together. I'm I I sexiest song she ever released. And boy did she try to be sexy after that. Boy did she. <laughs> and also Whitney um picked her to sing at a tribute for her once upon a time and I always say that I really kind of wish that she had kept going the route of that first album because the first Christina Aguilera album my grandmother used to always say Put that Christina girl on, you know, because like Mm -hmm. the album was pop, but it was giving Whitney's first album pop. Like you give good love, you know, Mm -hmm. it was it was very much pop, but with some R&B slinkiness to it. And I think with her vocals and the way that her career seemed like it was going with the first album, Christina could have been like a white Whitney, you know, for Mm -hmm. our generation. But as soon as, you know, the chaps came out, it was kind of over. <laughs> right. She also just, she just got into over singing too quickly. I think on the first yeah. album, it's like just the right amount of, oh, you're a really good singer. And also this is a really good pop hook. You know, one, they weren't competing with each other to happen. You know who learned? Ariana Grande. Because if you recall her first album with all the Mariah comparisons, it was a lot of hitting these notes, giving you this over singing. And then I feel like she pulled back. Right. No, she wanted to be a cooler artist. And I have to say, you know, Christina was never going for cool because um, the secret is she isn't. She would rather just be known (laughs) and loud, which also, again, is a niche. Like some people love to be like to love to fall over when they hear a singer. Except when you watch old videos of Christina with like the paparazzi and everything, walk around with Lala who has been friends with everybody in the industry at some point ever. (laughs) Um, And I'm not talking about Vanderpump Rules, la la, bitches. I'm talking about the original, la la. Um, Remember when she would walk around talking like um, she was a crit? (laughs) Also, (laughs) Christina, when she'd be like, she'd be like, hey, yo, what's up? Hey, MTV. I'm like, ma'am, where are you from? And the answer is the Mickey Mouse Club. (laughs) I know where you're from. Your childhood is on television. (laughs) The streets of Orlando. Yeah, right. (laughs) You're from the Magic Kingdom, motherfucker. Yeah. Uh, All right. We've got a fun episode. We have, we always have icons coming through. Keep it. We tend to. We tend to. Yeah. We tend to. But but we have a real icon this week. We interviewed. As in, like, yeah, as in, like when we heard we were getting this interview, it was like Ira and Lewis, you better snap it together. You better have you better the step it up. Yeah, you you better be watching some films, remembering some films. <laughs> well, if you you know are one of the keep it listeners who loves to um, look for clues 
in our social media, like um, like your Swifties. Uh-huh. <laughs> I feel like sometimes you can sense it. And if you sense that I was watching a lot of Todd Haynes films the past mm. couple weeks, I was researching because we interviewed Todd Haynes. Whom I had met uh, years ago at a junket for Carol. And I kind of thought, well, my life peaked then. I won't, I won't have the opportunity to do this again. And lo and behold, he was re-delivered back to us. And we get into so many, we get into so many of his movies. And then also just like, he is such a traditional, like real faggot, like loves pop culture, old and new. And we get into that with him. I'm so thrilled to share that with everyone. And then speaking of pop culture, old and new, um, we're going to talk about Saltburn this week. Yes, we had Emerald here last week, who uh, is a doll, lovely to talk to. And this is a movie that I think I've thought about more than most other movies I've seen this year. And you'll see why that's interesting when we get into it. But Right. Whatever you think about Saltburn, you cannot deny that the girls are talking. Yeah, right. In fact, they're yapping. <laughs> Which is a dead word that must be brought back. Because that's what people are doing. Do you go on Twitter today? They were yapping. They were yapping. <laughs> I love I love using that word. I use it like an everyday speech all the time. I'm al- I'm always saying that someone's either yapping or caterwauling. Yeah, caterwauling. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then also breaking news: <laughs> Lewis and I will not be in Scream Seven. I know, and I keep the people are clamoring outside the gates of whatever it is. Are they in Century City? I have no idea. Culver City. Uh, Melissa Barrera is out of Scream 7. Jenna Ortega is out of Scream 7. Me gente Latina. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about the Scream 7 debacle as well. Uh, so we will be right back with more Keep It. After historic abortion rights victories in Ohio and Virginia, Hysteria sits down with Chrissy Teigen for her insight into her personal journey with abortion, the impact of abortion bans, and the discussion around the importance of reproductive health advocacy. Watch the full conversation on Hysteria's YouTube out now. Obviously, the ongoing war in Palestine has had a global effect and has led to many celebrities to speak out in support of Israel or Palestine. Um, However, it seems to be the celebrities who speak out in favor of Palestinian people who are the ones being punished, fired, secretly emailed about at their jobs. Um, And that includes Melissa Barrera, who was dismissed from the Scream franchise last week, which she helped resurrect, by the way, um, by posting um, anti-Israel comments on Instagram. Meanwhile, Noah Schnapp is running around with his Zionism or sexy stickers, which, Zionism aside, that is supremely uncool behavior in general just running around with stickers for any religion is goofy (laughs) yeah stickers are kind of for the pediatrician's office i don't know okay i'm like what what are you linking up with kids from brigham young university too like (laughs) (laughs) i love jebediah or whoever he is (laughs) (laughs) who could be your teacher or your brother over there um 
Um, it's interesting. First of all, I mean, it puts you in the strange position of needing to defend Melissa Barrera. I mean, like, I'm just not obsessed with what she brings to Scream necessarily. And now I'm like, Melissa Barrera is what we all stand for. It's just a strange transition <laughs> for me. But secondly, um, it's weird because we were just talking recently about how Scream is probably the best horror franchise. Like, you can at least expect some level of quality or an attempted ingenuity or... Um, uh, 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 money thrown at the franchise so you don't feel like you're just getting like a cheap knockoff of five iterations ago. That said, still not good enough for me to keep watching if this is what's going to happen. You know what right. I mean? Like I could I'd throw that <laughs> away too. And I do have to say, ultimately, Scream has gotten away from the thing that made it amazing when it came out, which is what if somebody got into your fucking home? Like, like it's like they're over that. It's like we're well past that. Now, like, no, he's just in your house. You have to accept that. But like, no, like my nightmares at night are still about home invasions. And I feel like we've gotten away from the terror of someone being able to zero in on exactly where you are, get into your house and trap you. Yeah, I think that another thing that was going on with Scream was with this need to up the ante each time the uh, rumored plot for Scream 7 was going to take place at Christmas. It was going to involve uh, Jenna Ortega and Melissa Barrera visiting their estranged mother, who's only been mentioned in the previous two films. And obviously they were trying to rush it out so that it could be released around Christmas time next year. Well talk about throwing money at this franchise it seems like the franchise was already a mess before melissa was posting in support of palestine because jenna ortega wasn't even going to be in this damn film according to deadline and we know right listen, we we just went through a writer's strike um and we know that deadline is a studio show that makes up lies so <laughs> they could just be lying for spyglass entertainment um the production company behind the scream franchise reboot but it still goes to say that if you are trying to rush a movie out and get it done and shot so that it can be released around christmas next year and your lead jenna ortega is in this huge ass show wednesday and also shooting beetlejuice 2 um maybe you're not really figuring things out correctly right you know also, do we just cast Jenna Ortega in reboots of anything with dark-haired actresses? Like, is yes. she going to be in, like, the Moonstruck reboot? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> How do you say snap out of it in Spanish? Yeah. <laughs> I feel bad also for, like, the other cast members in this Scream movie. Like, if you're Jasmine Savoy Brown or whatever, you're like, what the hell am I supposed to do? Like, is... Was she even going to be in this fucking movie? Who knows? You're right. What am I? Because I feel like she was going to be shooting Yellow Jackets. <laughs> yeah, it's right. Right. Who knows? Who knows? And now you've got Spyglass. They really tried to turn shit around after they dropped Melissa, which, by the way, Melissa's exact post on her Instagram was cornering everyone together with nowhere to go, no electricity, no water. People have learned nothing from our histories. And just like our histories, people are still silently watching it all happen. This is genocide and ethnic cleansing. By the way, the UN is saying this. <laughs> no, like this, some, is the, some... this, this is not something that she's just, just like pulling from um, anti-Semitism daily. Okay. Right. No, and it was what she wrote was characterized as like playing on tropes of like Jews run Hollywood. No, it's not. I mean, like, I don't even feel like that is even like one one hundredth true. Let me tell you what's good. Let me tell you what's playing on that trope. 
people being fired for speaking out against <laughs> Israel. <laughs> that might be playing on the trope. Um, yeah. The Spyglass's statement was, Spyglass's stance is unequivocally clear. We have zero tolerance for anti-Semitism or the incitement of hate in any form, including false references to genocide, ethnic cleansing, Holocaust distortion, or anything that fragrantly crosses the line into hate speech. And well, when you have... UN and other officials actually using the word genocide um, and what is happening is tipping very much into that. Um, saying someone is creating false instances of genocide seems like you're opening, you're opening yourself up to being sued for defamation. It just feels like all of this is going to age immediately poorly tomorrow. Or if not today, I just, it's like, I don't understand. I'm just like... The, the the hands controlling all of these moves just feels very, very weird and scary and disorienting. What the fuck? What industry are we in? It felt very weird with the report, too, that um, Mark Platt emailing to try and get Boots Riley dropped by his agency because he objected to a film from the IDF. Is this where we are? And then also... Boost didn't get to drop because one, he's actually Jewish. And I feel like there have been a lot of mostly just like people of color having um, things happen to them for speaking out um, in support of Palestine and then also women like Susan Sarandon. Um, but there's this weird sort of like, okay, I gotcha. I'm actually Jewish too. So I'm allowed to say whatever I want to say. And now you can't fire me, you know? Like, if Boots Riley wasn't aren't Jewish, then what would have happened? Right, right. Also, it's, I mean, it's just interesting that at this point, I mean, Susan Sarandon has always been outspoken politically, and yet this yeah. finally is the moment where it feels like someone has taken, like, a step against her, too. I think that's completely telling, you know? Okay, um, you, didn't drop her for, you didn't drop her for all that Bernie shit? <laughs> <laughs> or specifically the tweet after the election when she's like when she said something like well the future is, can only get brighter from here or whatever she said after all that <laughs> I love Susan Sarandon I just want to say I do too and honestly yeah. the best thing that came out of this was finding out how funny her son is oh yeah she's got a couple of them I worked with one on McKimmel oh she's got multiple it seems I don't crazy really, but. I, I don't really know that much about Susan Sarandon's life to be honest <laughs> um, I just rewatched Atlantic City recently it's one of my favorite Susan Sarandon performances with Mr. Burt Lancaster finally giving a great performance after Elmer Gantry see how I brought this already back to the 50s and 60s I do love her turn as Sister Prejean oh yes Dead Man Walking sure yeah my favorite French nun actually never bad Susan Sarandon is good in everything <laughs> she's so believable she's so um, down to earth in movies I mean, obviously, yes, there's Thelma and Louise, but um, she actually has, looking at her filmography, she's actually been in a ton of shit I love. I just don't ever really think of Susan Sarandon recently, except for when she's feuding with Deborah Messing. Which, unfortunately, is the funniest feud of all time. I mean, <laughs> like the Hatfields and McCoys of stressed out actresses. Honestly, my favorite Susan Sarandon is probably Stepmom. Oh, she's amazing in that movie. Jesus Christ. Also, it's like movies that shouldn't be any good, like Lorenzo's Oil. She like is staggering in. Or the Banger Sisters. Uh, which was a banger. That's why they named it that. <laughs> what 20 she years before that was a coined term. They were like, we're going to call this the Banger Sisters. <laughs> what is she and Goldie up to? Let's, let's get the Banger Sisters too. 
Also, like they'll just throw Susan Sarandon at anything. She's in the movie Tammy playing Tammy's mom. That's like a, cra- a kooky comedy. Who would think to put Susan Sarandon in that? And yet she kind of belongs. Not that that's a wonderful movie or anything. It's an awful movie. Has anybody seen Genie yet? <laughs> oh, I don't think so. Which, you know what? I, I will be seeing it. I, apparently, it's not a Ben Falcone joint, which shocked me. Last thing I'll say about Susan Sarandon before we go back to the topic. You know what movie she's also really good in? Hmm. Shall We Dance? I have not seen Shall We Dance. In fact, I get that mixed up with Dance With Me. Oh, yeah. That's uh, Richard Gere at J-Lo. Mejente Latina. (laughs) (laughs) Also, the things we have just thrown Richard Gere in. So strange where we think he belongs. He belongs exactly in the movie Unfaithful all the time. Everything should be centered around that. Um, Anyway, Scream 7... Sounds like a big disaster now. And also... And what the director said was like, was strange too. Girl, I mean, and I love Chris Landon's gay ass. Yeah, me too. You know, because (laughs) I I love uh, Freaky, Happy Death Day. I love Happy Death Day to you, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, But his statement, which was basically... um, It was like, dot, 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 this sucks, dot, dot, dot. This sucks. Everyone stop yelling. Um, this wasn't my decision. Heartbreak emoji. Sir, you're an adult. <laughs> yeah, heart- <laughs> we, 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 we've gotten a little facile with the emojis. They don't belong everywhere. <laughs> so, um, I don't know, man. It just feels like it kind of really sucks and Spyglass really kind of showed their ass with that statement too. And I just feel like I don't want to support any further Scream movie if they're making it. And especially with how Melissa was treated um, by being dropped from the movie like this, I would side-eye anyone who signed on to the movie to replace her. Even Nev Campbell? Yeah, but also I don't think Nev Campbell's doing that shit. That that would be pretty wild at this point. Yeah. They really pushed that narrative the day after their statement came out because they were trying to, you know, change the story around. If you don't like what people are saying, Changed the narrative, as Don Draper said. Right, and yes, our hero. That was that was really deadline doing the studio um, shilling because the way they disrespected her with lowballing her before. Why would she come back to them, especially after they did this to Melissa, and especially right. after Jenna's not in the movie? Like, you want me to come back and resuscitate this franchise that you basically just stabbed yourself. Right. But Nev Campbell is one of those people where I'm like, well, she's not in stuff all the time. Like, I don't know what the financial situation is. Here's the most gigantic payday she will ever be able to get for herself. I say this affectionately as a Nev Campbell and specifically Nev Campbell side eye stand. Um, uh, but so it's like I, she would have reason to return to this since it's like her friend. You know, it's like if you threw enough money yeah. at Kim Cattrall, she does appear on Sex in the City. You know what I'm saying? So Nev um, sitting in a car. On the phone. <laughs> you think you're kidding. I th- That's the kind of cameo I bet you'd get from her. <laughs> Saying the word Dewey and looking out the window before she hangs up. Yeah. The ideal cameo I would love from her is, in a better world where Spyglass isn't making this movie, is you get the opening kill scene with her, but her phone rings, she answers it, it's Ghostface, and she's like... 
absolutely not. And she just yeah. hangs up and goes about her day and it goes, scream seven. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and then right. you never see her again. <laughs> Maybe she stabs the phone or something. I don't know. Get, get into some Dada art there. She's like, I'm not doing that shit. <laughs> Have a good day. Yeah. Anyway, uh, when we're back, we sit down with someone who actually knows what they're doing when it comes to making movies. Todd Haynes. Keep It is brought to you by Kiriuma. Kiriumas have been our go-to sneakers for a while now because they're really comfortable, go with everything, and they're made with consciously sourced materials. I love and wear Kiriuma sneakers all the time, and I can prove it because they are on my feet. I don't know how else to prove to you that I like Kiriuma sneakers, but I wear them in my spare time. And you can only wear two shoes at a time. And I'm wearing, of the, of the many shoes you can choose, I choose Kiriuma right now. You're in it. Last year, we collaborated with Karyuma to create No Steps Back sneakers, and we can't believe they have now designed a second limited edition collaboration with us, the Love It or Leave It sneaker. Well, you know, I am an ah real monster, so I'm able to wear four shoes at a time. Ah, you're both Ickis and Oblina? No, Oblina had two feet. She just had them lips. No, right. I'm obsessed with female cartoon characters and then when they have giant luscious lips. It's frightening. You know, it's like Miss Pac-Man or um, Arlene the Cat from Garfield. Why is she so... Voluptuous. Well, you know why Miss Pac-Man had them DSLs. She was okay. eating everything in sight. Right. <laughs> you think it's just fruits? <laughs> Dig in a little deeper. You'll see. These, these shoes have a colorful design with <laughs> lots of Easter eggs. <laughs> Back to the Love It or Leave It sneakers. They have a colorful design with a lot of Easter eggs. I mean, not Taylor Swift level Easter eggs. We're not insane. Just fun stuff like Pundit on a Surfboard. Plus, a portion of the proceeds from every pair sold is donated to VSA's Every Last Vote Fund. Our first Karyuma collab sold out super fast, so if you want a pair for yourself or for the Love It fan in your life, make sure to snag one now. They make the perfect gift for the holiday season with free returns. So just head to crooked.com slash store. That's crooked.com slash store. So our guest today is a certified master of his field, a director known for bringing life to provocative, complex characters, often played by Julianne Moore, and representing powerful artists from Bob Dylan to Karen Carpenter in more human and intricate lights. He's back with his new film, May-December, starring Natalie Portman and the aforementioned frequent collaborator, Julianne Moore. We're very excited to have with us today, Todd Haynes. Hi, Ira. Hey, Louis. Hi. Oh, God, we are so psyched to have you. Uh, we are gay men who like movies, so we're sort of in the Todd <laughs> Haynes racket. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 Um, I have to ask about May-December, which is um, a film starring Julianne Moore as sort of this... Um, almost Mary Kay Letourneau-esque character. Oh, quite. You know, she yes. quite uh, had an affair with um, a seventh grader um, in her 30s. And then we flash forward to um, Natalie Portman, who is a Hollywood actress who is visiting them to play Julianne Moore. Um, and she's, you know, digging into their life. And, um, you know, the film has, you know, so many of your usual... Um, 
qualities of melodrama and, you know, um, pulling from so many of your cultural references. And I have to ask, um, as a person who loves culture so much, you know, you, Karen Carpenter, Bob Dylan, you know, everything that you mine from, um, what's it like working on a film like this where you didn't write the script, it came to you um, from Natalie, I believe, because she had wanted to work with you. Um, what's it like when you get a script that isn't something that you crafted yourself and you're finding a way to tap into, I guess, all of the things that are in your brain and make it yours? You know, really, I heard this has been, I've been doing this for, for a, I've been working in this way for a while uh, now, mm-hmm. um, since Carol was the first f- script that came to me that, that I didn't originate myself. And it's been such a great um, sort of broadening of the vernacular of options and the, and the methods that, you know, I would always hear directors saying, I have a lot of things going and different things at different stages. And I'm, I was always like, wow, how do they do that? You know, like I was always <laughs> so intensely single-minded on the thing that I was, you know, developing and writing and, and producing and seeing completely from insemination all the way through to the end. Um, and this has been a really nice part of part of it is just that you 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 can have different things in different stages and and it's and it, and were that not the case, in fact, May December wouldn't have been able to um, take grab the sudden availability of last fall and in, in, in um, that we all shared for a second with me and Natalie and 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 Julianne our schedules lining up and deciding like. Because that other stuff we had all been doing shifted and changed, which is just what happens, and so we went for it and, and made it possible. But I'll, but I'll, but I'll speak a little more, I think, to what you're maybe really asking, or, or, or may, maybe um, is that um, you know the the scripts that I ha- that I have written are are almost always interpolations, interpretations, um, uh, appro- appropriations or uh, ways or critiques or, or ways of looking at existing language, culture, history, stories of Bob Dylan's lives and, and, and the glam rock artists of the 1970s or the films of Douglas Sirk or and and so i always feel like i'm already in this position of <clears throat> taking things that we all that come out of our common languages and common stories and um and finding new ways of recombining those elements and looking at them and and so uh, it it never felt like such a wild deviation to go to and then the, and then the 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 last film i did the last project i made before Carol came my way was my adaptation of of James M. Cain's Mildred Pierce. Yes, absolutely. That I did with uh, my my partner John Raymond, who lives in Portland, and that was just that was like wow! Look what they had done to his uh, look what they done to my song, Ma. Um, <laughs> James M. Cain's intentions and and original book of Mildred Pierce and what what Warner Brothers had done with the the you know the beautiful Michael Curtiz version of that film, but it was basically turning it back into a crime drama, which it wasn't as a novel. He was really trying to do something quite differently. And we loved what was different about the book and its own integrity and made that the source material for Mildred Pierce. 
so again, it's just all of these, I don't know, different examples of, of being really, um, you know, interested and curious and wanting to sort of recombine elements of things that we may have seen before or that we bring as knowledge as viewers of movies to what we see. I'll get back to the uh, older stuff you've done momentarily, but it must be said about both Julianne and Natalie in this movie. They're, they're playing characters I've not seen either of them do before, and they're making choices that are both down to earth and very eerie. Like as it goes on, I'm like, oh, these are two of the weirder characters they've ever played. What was it like working with them crafting these characters? Did they have these sort of quote unquote finished from the jump or did you have to finesse it as it went along? Um, we, it, it was, it was, for, I guess if I had to pick between those, those two options, they, they, it was finished from the jump uh, to the degree that we, we had to jump in and go. There was no rehearsal time. There was no way to reshoot scenes. We didn't have any, um, we really didn't have any margin of error in the schedule or, or in the, the visual strategy of how to shoot this film with this kind of austere, you know, often single shot setups for scenes or scenes designed around mirrors in bathrooms or, or ladies rooms or dress stores or so forth. And that created another kind of container, I guess, for, uh, a very complicated story that keeps shifting uh, under your feet as you watch it unfold, particularly how you feel about these characters and what your, what your expectations are for who they are and then how those expectations start to shift, particularly around the character of Elizabeth that Natalie plays. Um, and, and so, yeah, the, I felt like the, the 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 containers that I brought to it, which were both visual, but also in the 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 use of music and in the sort of tonal elements, were ways um, that put us all together in a sort of conceptual framework and stylistic um, environment for the film. But it also made it was also practical in that there was a great economy to this way of shooting the film and we had to get right to it. But all to say that we were basically flying without a net. There was no other way that we covered the scenes. If they didn't work out this way in the editing room, there was really no options. And and what that meant is that without rehearsal and with so many scenes where actors are basically performing the whole scene and so many examples in one shot. Uh, they were producing these representations of these two women right in front of you in real time. And, uh, and so that put a tremendous burden on these actors, but it also gave them freedom in, in some ways because they could just sort of exist with each other uh, on, on screen and let that time and, and those pauses bristle with tension and, and look at small looks and things that we were, we were allowed to take in in real time end up having great impact. Hmm. Um, one of the things I truly love about getting to see a director's body of work is, you know, the people that they continue to work with. And you've worked with Julianne, um, multiple times. Um, 
What's it like coming into May, December with her? I just recently rewatched Safe and Far From Heaven. Um, and seeing, you know, she's playing this housewife in sort of all three of them, but she's such a different version of a housewife in all of them. Yeah. She's unspooling in Safe and, you know, she's trying to find love as her marriage is crumbling and Far From Heaven. And in this, she's really more of like, you see sort of like a panther sort of by the end, you know, I think it's one of her definitely as Lewis said, one of her eeriest roles, one of her roles where I think as a housewife, she has more control than she's ever had um, on screen in one of these roles. I guess I just want to ask what it's been like working with her from film to film and what sort of differences you've noticed in this film versus when you first worked with her um, on safe. Um, there's a lot in that, in that, in that really interesting question. Um, and, and just on the very, on the very sort of sense of what it's like to work with her and how I seen her change, um, every time has been, um, such an amazing singular sort of experience unto itself, you know, as each film is sort of its own, you know, beast, um, but what was just so crazy is that when we first met on, on safe, that is, that I still think is one of the most, um, you know, one of the most challenging roles that one could ever ask an actor to embody. Um, because it was almost like asking somebody to play a person who wasn't there and and to play in in negation of all the things we expect a character to use to make themselves seen and felt and present that she was completely reactive she was somebody you'd meet at a party and you wouldn't remember the first thing about the next day she was unremarkable in every way um and she was a cipher to herself and that was the sort of precondition of her. And then, then all these things started to happen to her. Um, but Julianne came with such a complete uh, sense of, of, how, of how she heard Carol White's voice and, and who this woman might be. And she said, I think she's, she said this in, in, in over the years that we t- as we've talked about it, but she said to her agent, like, I, I love this script. I, I really am connected to this script. It's really important. Um, something special and and i i have an idea it's very specific about who this woman is and the agent was like well you don't have to read you're not going to read for him and she's like no i'm going to read for him because i want to show him what i'm thinking and if it's not Mm -hmm. if it doesn't fit what he's thinking then that's fine that's it if it does great and that's exactly what she did and it so went beyond fitting what i was thinking it completely filled in spaces that were yet to be filled in, which is what, you know, which is just what happens in, in, in big and small ways with almost every effective piece of casting that you do in a movie. Um, because you're always moving from something, um, that's a, that's a, 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 you know, a blueprint for the next stage from script. Even the dailies is a blueprint for what you're going to cut and everything is, you know, you have to keep shifting what it is you think you're doing or what's in front of your face and adjusting to it and yielding to it. But, um, but yes, this character of Gracie Atherton, you, 
that that Julianne plays in May December is uh, is something else, and so and so is Elizabeth. As it turns out, mm-hmm. uh, these are women who are as you as you're as you're describing driving the story with their willful desires and needs and and power in a way over over the men around them. And that's quite different from the other kinds of uh, female characters that have usually been the subject of my movies. Mm-hmm. I also think of you as one of these uh, Elmadovar-like people where if you get cast in a Todd Haynes movie, it's like, you won't believe what you're going to do. Like, there's lots of new things that are like, completely new to this role that they haven't done in other roles. This is a broad question about your career, but do you have any favorite casting moments where you got to see an actor do something they had never done before and were maybe even surprised what they came up with on the screen? I have a lot. I have a lot of those, and it'll be the kind of question that after I answer it, I'll keep going. Oh, I should have mentioned that one. <laughs> I mean, the, when, as you describe it in real time, I just immediately thought of Tony Collette. I was going to bring her up mm. too. Yes, in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> in in um, Velvet. In, not in uh, in in Velvet Goldmine. We asked um, her about that role recently, and really? she was she had she, she described working on it with you, and just like how much. She tapped into that role and remembers it very fondly. I mean, and 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 to set the stage on the casting of Tony in that role because she was doing another film. She was clearly somebody at the top of our list, but she was unavailable to audition. She was compl- I forget what it was or where she was and why she was really truly not available. And we conducted a, a casting search for the role of Mandy. And I was working with Laura Rosenthal in New York, and this is my first time working with Laura, and we've continued to work on all of my movies ever since. But we were also working with the amazing Susie Figgis, the English casting director out of the UK. And I saw what I, I felt like I saw every actor, every female actor in that age category uh, that was brought to me with the special attention of their of these act, casting directors. I saw so many brilliant actors that year, but it was such a hard role to cast that no one, that very few, you know, time and time again, the Americans and the Brits had a hard time understanding the sort of hybrid nature of Mandy. Mm-hmm. And Mandy, Mandy was, of course, inspired by Angela Bowie, who, who would switch from an English accent to an American accent in mid-sentence. And who would say, darling, and she was just this vestige of a kind of femininity, a kind of theatrical, um, artificial, almost camp femininity that, that, you know, let's face it, it was a relief when Patti Smith came along and said, we don't got to act that way anymore, you know, (laughs) and everything changed from then on. And, but all of a sudden it was very hard to locate that. In, mm-hmm. in 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 our in the ni- in the nineties in the mid nineties as an example there was a you know Liza Minnelli was sort of the last example of that and it but it had to be that and so it was the it was the Aussies of course the Aussies <laughs> who understand British culture and American culture probably better than either cultures do themselves right. And so she could navigate that place. She also just got to be, and she doesn't always get to be this, and she hadn't really up till that time. And 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 I, I don't know every movie she's 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 done since, but she got to be the, the sexiest, most you know, such a yeah. beautiful, 
arousing, sensual uh, presence in, in the movie. Um, and she's so beautiful and always was, you know, but she got to really play that part of her beauty in the, in the movie. Mm. Uh, circling back to Lewis, who just brought up um, truly one of my favorite directors that I bring up on this podcast all the time, El Motivar. Um, I consider you and him sort of kindred in a sense that I feel like you were coming out of the new queer cinema when you did Poison. Um, and that's such a very, you know, transgressive film um and it was very polarizing when it came out um and in form it's very different than how your films have sort of become now but when i look at his films you know particularly the ones from the 80s like they're very queer very loud very out there critics are like what the fuck is going on here and now you know he's making volver and um broken embraces and you know it's sort of aged into he's writing about different stories as he ages in his life. And I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. if you feel like your sensibilities have changed a bit as you've gotten older and made more films, or if you still sort of have some of that, um, I'm fighting against the system spirit that you had when you were making that film. Although I feel like culture has changed a bit now where you can make sort of more transgressive films and they won't be as polarizing as you know poison was when it first came out yeah or more polarizing (laughs) than we've (laughs) ever imagined um it's a scary it's a scary world out there right now it's hard to even understand how polarized it is and how extreme the far right has gone off the reservation um and how dangerous it is. I thought I, I thought I was seeing the excesses of the far right and its language and its impact in the in the ninety in the eighties and nineties. Um, and it's all been under the umbrella of conservative, um, the conservative era that really was inaugurated with with um, with uh, Reagan. There was a tryout session with Goldwater, which which kind of scared people and put the Republican party in retreat for a while, but then it's roots. That's what you got to watch out for that the roots grow deep and the fruit that it ultimately bears can be much more poisonous than what you ever imagined. And I think that's been happening almost since 1980 with Reagan um, to the degree that Reagan and Goldwater would be appalled by what's happening today in their mm-hmm. own party. It's just that, much of a runaway train, but, um, but I, but no, I think we're never the same as we are when we're, we're, we're young. Uh, we're never driven by the same kind of hormonal and social and cultural sort of, you know, forces. And of course the culture that you find yourself, you don't choose it. It's the one that is you fall into that's that is your fate to be um confronted with at various times of your life for me in those formative years it was it was around aids hiv and that public health crisis and that and then and that global crisis and and um and and it 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 employed and emboldened and it and it made an army out of culture queer cultures and, and and black cultures and ivy drug communities and lesbian cultures and we had no choice our lives were being basically 
just thrown away uh, by the status quo. And so it drove me and everybody around me. And I was in New York City and I was an a- involved in ACT UP and, and activism. And so that that sense of just an urgency about about responding to what was happening in the world was very much um, indistinguishable, I guess, from the, the the films I was making at the time. And and so that informed it. And I think that's true for, for Pedro as well, you know, mm-hmm. of course. And um, uh, who's who I can't speak more highly of and who I bow down to in his unbelievable <laughs> body of work and uh, genius and uh, yeah, just and coherence of that body of work, you know. Um, but uh but yeah, I think it's always changing. I mean, what I'm about to do next is a very is a film that I haven't a, a, at least a, a, a storyline and and kind of sexual relationship between two men that I haven't explored in maybe since Poison, uh, maybe mm. since the beginning. Um, in 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 terms of the um, some of the content and and uh, and and how it takes these two men outside, throws them out. Of, of the world that they know in unexpected ways. Uh, this is this project with Joaquin Phoenix that I've been developing with Joaquin and right. John Raymond. And uh, we'll be shooting in the summer. Um, and it's exciting. It's really exciting to, to do something that'll be different, so different from things I've done recently. Mm-hmm. Um, you have done so much to bring things like knowledge of Douglas Sirk movies or like you had the Velvet Underground movie recent, uh, uh, recently and you have your Karen Carpenter movie. You're somebody who, as much as you are invested in doing something new and original, I always feel like you have a foot in the past and are interested in like being, like, being kind of a curator of what's interesting about movie history or pop culture history. What haven't you gotten to yet that you feel like you will somehow explore in some way? You know, like what, uh, is there some actress or something that you hope gets the Todd Haynes touch and will f- hopefully reintroduce this thing to society. I mean, i the things that I'm think that I would, that would come to mind are things that have already been mentioned in, in the press because they've occupied some energies uh, of mine, um, some more than others in trying to get them made. But again, in this sort of more multi-tiered approach, um, and, the, and, and the fact that we've been hit by a pandemic and by a strike and by things that have, um, that have um, artificially shut down what we normally do and how we normally do it um, has shifted what's possible and, and when. But that's also just the nature of filmmaking and working with other actors. But uh, one was the Peggy Lee project that, that yes. uh, I was very mm. excited about doing. Uh, it's, it's, I don't have a schedule for I don't have a calendar time for it, unfortunately, right now, because other things sort of came in and filled in this, the space that it had occupied, first and foremost, being May, December. And then I'm doing the Joaquin project next. And then, but I got, I, I, I will uh, at some point get back to Freud. And that's been a subject that I really, uh, I owe to myself to take on in some capacity in one way or another, because uh, he sort of hovers over it all for me. And it's, and it's a figure who I think uh, who's, who's insight and who's um, understanding and who's basically creation of modernity uh, in the most radical way um, gets lost a little bit 
in the way that we he's so familiar and so so become so colloquialized and so woven into our culture that you almost don't see him anymore. And so I want to sort of reveal how central he is to thinking and understanding and interpreting the world and how much he's changed all, all the way we all think about our inner lives and our desires. Did you by chance see the movie with Peggy Lee? She was nominated for Pete Kelly's Blues yeah, anytime sure. recently. She's kind of like an untapped actress. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like we should have gotten way more of that out of her. Oh no, it's true. She was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for that for that mm-hmm. performance. And and again, it was sort of a, one of those tender little things where the circumstances made that possible. Jack Webb uh, yeah. asking her to do the movie and um, and showing her that kind of love and respect and. And then people sort of confusing the performance with the real Peggy Lee afterwards in an unfortunate way that kind of tarnished that remarkable example of her acting. Because she really, I mean, she she was an actor in her club performances. She, I mean, she was a consummate actor in her, in her, in her life as a singer and performer. Um, there's a beautiful story where um, Rebel Without a Cause was being shot in the same studio as Pete Kelly's Blues. And uh, James Dean would just sneak out of the, his soundstage and just find his way under her table of her dressing room and just sit there with her in silence in the dressing room together. And he just, wow. he had a deep love and respect for her. But they, but they didn't even need to talk. They just hung out without talking in her dressing room. I love that. Like the summit of the absolute best things about 1955 in one place. Oh my God. Uh, I have to say, you know, um, I think it was Far From Heaven in college that um, really sort of introduced me to melodrama and then Cirque and then, you know, Written on the Wind is my favorite of his. But... Um, mm. You know, you you borrow from that so much, and then also Fassbender um, and his sort of interpretation of Cirque's melodramas. But I have to say that May December is so funny, and I feel like it's one of your funniest films. And it's almost—I wouldn't say camp, like some people have said. I feel like it's almost zany in some aspects. And I have to wonder, as you know, a connoisseur of. Um, old films, and you say you've said in interviews that you you know you'd rather watch um, you know life um, Turner Classic movies than you know watching something new now. Fuck yeah! Have you ever been um, drawn to like wanting to do a screwball comedy? You know, like a bringing up baby. Like, are are those the kind of like older films that you find yourself drawn to, or is it dramas? It, it, to be honest, it really is more dramas, and absolutely. Ira, as you as you know, domestic drama as a melodrama, yeah. <laughs> and um, but um, but it is I, what I what I what I I love I love how I love how the search for um, kind of adjectives for what May December is and does or or or, or, or uh, stylistic terms generic terms maybe is such an interesting sort of shimmy that's been going on among 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 people who really dig the movie but are just trying Mm -hmm. to find a way of exactly what is this thing you know and so camp was a term that came up during 
during Cannes, I believe that's the first time I, I heard it. And then other journalists around the same time were picking up on it. And we, we all looked at each other like, what? Camp? That's so crazy. <laughs> but I, but I, of course, I love camp and I'm so interested in camp. And to me, it's more a mode of, of how we read things through, through the distance of time and history and, and new, new meanings accrue. Uh, from things over time and perspective and from marginal communities, perspectives about dominant communities and so forth. There are other marginal communities more more often like queer culture, looking at stories of women, for instance, or whatever. But, um, but even saying zany, like I just love that there's no, there's no real way to describe it. It, it, It kind of functions on its own. Uh, in its own mul- multiple sort of cluster of tones and and um, and and uh, operatives, or, or it's not quite the word, but um, that that's what that is that is truly you know uh, is 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 really interesting to me, and and something that I think we're all still watching unfold, and have audiences find new layers of terms and feelings and. Ex- reactions to as they see it and and i just we just had our premiere last night and even people who worked on the film like my costume designer april napier was we were talking and she said this is the third time i've seen it and she's like I, i'm seeing things i've never and i know the film i'm i made it with you i, I made it <laughs> and there's things in it i just never saw before and so she keeps it does it's, it is that kind of film where you keep finding new layers and meanings and details and perspectives and humor and all that stuff as you watch it Mm. Uh, I guess my last question is, it'd be crazy if we didn't have a Carol question in here before we kicked you out, but Carol's one of the few movies I've seen probably in the past 10, 15 years that was, I, I found not only good, but truly sublime. There is something about the movie that is both extremely like classic Hollywood and also extremely new. Like Kate Blanchett brings more old Hollywood glamour than any old Hollywood actress did. You know, like she's just like full of power. And I assume a lot of the sublime nature of that movie, you know, comes in getting the editing together and picking takes and stuff. But is there anything when you were watching live at the time where you're, you already thought this is sublime already. There's something I'm watching live that's unusual and going to stand the test of time. You know, when you're really in the throes of it all, you just don't have the, it, 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 you're just not inclined to uh, uh, attribute that those kinds of, those kinds of meanings to, to what you're making. Cause it's because you don't even know what it is until you're, until you're at the next stage, you keep learning what it is more and more. I will say that just the way they were costumed and, and styled mm-hmm. um, in the film uh, by Sandy Powell and by our hair and makeup departments. Um, I do remember uh, having that just that one little moment of just sort of stepping back and going like, damn, that looks, there's something iconic. There's something a little bit indelible about, about them because they also are counters to each other and they complement each other. And, but it's so distinctive and the choices in those areas are so specific uh, and suited the actors so well and the characters so well. So in that way, I had a moment maybe a glimmer of seeing something that you, you sort of imagine could could survive the moment that we're in you know yeah sandy powell is like that's a she's like a gangster to use an old term i mean like who does it like her yeah 
Uh, thank you so much for being here, Todd. Uh, it was oh, really an honor to talk fun. to you about this film. And I also must say that I'm, I was a Riverdale fan. Um, and seeing Charles, Charles Melton in this film, what he did uh, in this film, it's spectacular. Um, yeah. And that performance you got out of him um, is amazing. And people will be talking about that for and him for years. So what a great film. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ari. Thank you so much, Louis. So great to talk to you guys. I loved it. Since we pretty much foreshadowed it in that Emerald Finale interview last week, we figured we'd jump right into our coverage of Saltburn, the movie that everybody is talking about. This movie is Roxy Hart. It's on everybody's lips. <laughs> uh, and also, I, I'm kind of surprised in a way. Um, I guess like people have gotten screeners of it or whatever. I, I guess what surprises me is like whether or not you like it or dislike it. I don't find it to be ultimately so provocative that you if I, I don't see any reason to hate it even if you didn't like it so mm. yeah i think that a lot of the hate and the vitriol that is coming from this film is mostly directed at emerald and i Which will say why? that it, it, i think it will for one thing i think like there's this sentiment that the promising young woman oscar was undeserved Mm -hmm. um, they didn't particularly love that film. And I think that there's also the fact that, you know, this film is about student Oliver Quick, Barry Keoghan, who's at Oxford University, and he's poor, and he's drawn into the world of charming, aristocratic Felix Catton, Jacob Elordi, and his family at Saltburn, this sprawling, eccentric estate. And it's sort of this riff of... Upstairs, downstairs, you know, and like a class commentary. But I think the commentary coming from a lot of people is the fact that, well, girl, what are you doing making a class commentary when you are upper class? You but, know? Okay, like every fucking artist in history does things like that. It's, it's, <laughs> I'll be talking about the Barbara memoir again later, but it's like, it's like when she gets criticized for being a control freak, when it's like, Warren Beatty and Robert Redford have handled the same amount of movies as them, and like they aren't criticized for that kind of thing. It's just random that people think like Emerald Fennell, who I guess is like charming and winning in interviews, could also possibly, um, and, and literally she played a rich person on The Crown. So maybe it's hypocritical for her to want to talk about class. Okay, it's not. So, well, I do have a question for you though. Then, do you find um, that there is a responsibility if you come from a place of wealth and privilege? if you are writing about it, um, to attack it in a different way. And I mean that in the sense that if you're writing and you're attacking class in the film, um, but you're sort of from, you know, like a friend lent you salt burn, you know, through connections that you made. Um, so you're closer to the Jacob Elordi character than you are the Barry Keoghan character. What responsibility do you think an artist has in making that kind of work? I mean, I just don't think the biographical information of the person creating the film is relevant at all, necessarily. Um, I mean, like, I don't know anything about the people who created Parasite, you know, which I think is a pretty awesome commentary on class. It doesn't make me think one way or the other about um, what happens in that film. But I think that is where the 
um, people are getting a little upset about this movie because recently we've had movies like Parasite that like find a kooky way into exploring class and what mm-hmm. we want out of like richness. And that movie necessarily lent itself to the Oscar conversation. Whereas this movie sort of entertains things that are associated with prestige, but then ultimately doesn't have much to say about them other than, isn't it crazy that this psychotic person got his way into their home? I think the problem with this movie is that the ending does not live up to how entertaining the rest of the movie is. No, the third act for me completely falls apart uh, and sort of ruins all of the sleaze of the... Yes. Well, and not so much sleaze, indie sleaze maybe, uh, particularly with it being set in the mid-2000s. It's not really repulsive in the way that a lot of people think it is. I mean, licking up cum in a bathtub and fucking a grave in the cemetery is like a low-grade passions episode to me. Mm -hmm. But I think that there is just this sort of train that's running at the beginning of the film, and then it sort of just comes to a halt for the last half of the movie. And of course, once all of Barry Keoghan's sort of crimes are revealed at the end of the film, it it really gets into like Bond villain territory. And I sort of checked out. Also, I think you can end any movie basically the way this one ends with this gimmick of, actually, the lead character who you thought was just a depraved loser planned the whole thing. I mean, like you could have ended Forrest Gump with and he planned the whole thing. You know? She's all that. Imagine it ends that way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You but see her like, putting on the glasses, and she's like, I'm going to trick him into placing a bet on me. Yes, right, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, yeah, at the end of this movie, he's literally dancing naked through Saltburn, which he has now somehow acquired by step-by-step step killing everybody in the house. And the movie's idea is that he knew he could do that. Okay, a couple of questions. Why does he want this weird, horrible, huge house? Just to be in by himself? It doesn't make any sense. Right. He, he's obsessed with Jacob Elordi. Seemingly. Seemingly. Um, but everything that he does in the film and then after, you know, like the accident happens with Jacob Elordi makes no sense because then you're just going to be in this house by yourself. They're like the family isn't there. The stuff that you get from, you know, having rich people around isn't there. You're, you're basically just in this house with the staff who hates you. Yeah. And also it's like, you have these living parents who are sort of nearby who are like going to be aware of what you have done. It's like lots of things like don't close up at the end of this movie, which also is a, is a little bit of a problem with Promising Young Woman too. Like the ending of that movie is like, wait, so she planned on being killed and then she was like, I'm going to record some audio so that later people can give me justice so that, but well after I'm dead, of course, which I've planned. Like what? Like it's, it, it, nobody behaves like this. It's strange. Yeah. It's um, even like some of the creepier things in the movie or, you know, the outlandish things like, you know, the 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 licking up the bathwater thing is yeah. very who does that? Yes. And, and also it's, it's it, like it, it feels like they're planted scenes so that they create amazing Twitter headlines like blank blank cl- licks up come in this new zany scene coming to theaters, you know, whereas like they don't really add up to anything like the sexuality in this movie is ultimately a red herring. You know, it's like mm-hmm. not about that. Ultimately, he just wants a big house to live in at the end of this. It must be said, um, she has said that the talented Mr. Ripley did not inspire this movie at all. That is kind of crazy to me because I feel like 
we the, the the reason the movie is so good to begin with is because you are charmed by Jacob Elordi in the way that you are charmed by Jude Law in the Talented mm-hmm. Mr. Like you're like there is something to want here and specific about this person and like the weird world he lives in and his like ambivalence about giant parties being thrown at his house. Like you want to connect to that level of glamour. Um, I think for me, going back to that sort of privilege thing, though, I feel like sure you don't necessarily need to know the biographical information about everybody who makes a film. But I do think that if you are going to attack this and then it falls flat, then people are going to wonder why. And I think that the reason why the sort of class commentary isn't as searing as it should be is because if she's trying to place herself in the role of Barry Keoghan, she hasn't lived that life, you know, like going in and being like from the outsider looking in, it's like, you're trying to write Oliver Twist or Annie, but you grew up as Daddy Warbucks, you know? So, like, you don't know that perspective, and I just don't think that there's enough delving into that perspective to make the movie work for me, ultimately. I don't hate it. I had a lot of fun watching it. Um, I think it's definitely Slumber Party vibes, you know? <laughs> I'd, put, I'd put it on and let, let it just play. I literally think Jacob Elordi is amazing. I think he is yeah. awesome in this movie. The performances are amazing. Him, yeah. um, Rosamund Pike, Richard E. Grant, um, Barry's great. I My main problem, I guess, is the, the black character in a film, like this introduction of race also within class just sort of arrives and then it doesn't really go anywhere. And who is that character? And what does he think about Barry Keoghan's character and what is his real relation to the family and then he's just sort of jettisoned away and also it's sort of like the Philip Seymour Hoffman character in The Talented Mr. Ripley who has the insight on the creepy um, unreliable protagonist but in that movie you get more into his mind and his depths right and in this yeah. one I'm like is this, char- is this character in love with Jacob Elordi too you know is he jealous of Barry's appearance in his life and the fact that he is never going to catch the eye of Jacob because Jacob continues to pick up these stray cats every year off the street, right? There's just never really delving into, I guess, the psyches of anyone. I don't even know why the fucking sister is doing what she's doing. Yeah, the movie. No. Walking around in the moonlight? Are you possessed? But also, it's like you just said, like, so she comes from a privileged background and so does she have the insight to make a character like Barry's interesting? I don't think the rich people are well-rounded characters. They're total caricatures. You know, like, That's fair. like Ros- Rosamund Pike is giving a very funny performance. The line readings are funny. But like, what is the point of the scene after Jacob Elordi's dead and then the the family decides to have lunch anyway? Like, we're just supposed to think they're buffoons or something? Like, what's what's what are we saying about these people other than they're dupable or they're... Um, I don't know. It's like it was, it was going for arch and um, uh, satirical, and it came up with confusing for me. She saw an Ibsen play once. Yeah, I, yeah. It feels like yes. It was the Girl Yeah, and it was okay. <laughs> Turn the song off. Yeah. Um, no, I, I. So it also, it's a movie that ends to me like what I think the most overrated movie ending in history is, which is The Usual Suspects. Like when uh. you watch that movie and then it ends, you're like well, what was the point of the movie I just watched then? Like, that's not clever. It's just you saying, he he ran this whole thing, actually. It just, it's like completely boring to me. It's like the end of, a, it's something that should be a comic strip length and you turned it into a movie. 
Right. I much prefer a movie if it's going to have a mystery like that, that you either see them working towards the goal throughout the entire movie. Because, you know, as Hitchcock said, tension. <laughs> as Kylie Minogue said, tension. Yes. <laughs> Uh huh. Kylie and Hitchcock, you know, right up there, the masters. And as Hannah Gatsby said, tension. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you, to see someone working towards a goal is much better. You know, if you're going to make it a who done it as well, then it needs to be a who done it in a Agatha Christie type of way, in a you know, a scream, a knives out kind of way, where not something where it's the main character who you've been following the entire movie is all of a sudden like, well, I was lying to you. Yeah, right. Also, I mean, it has to be said, and we talked about this before, um, there are very few satisfying whodunits in anything. In terms of like, you have a story where there's a few possibilities of who could have done it and where it ends up is both logical and surprising. We talk about the first season of Veronica Mars. That, to Mm -hmm. me, is a satisfying whodunit. I personally feel like we do not have many of those like like even like like I think on AFI's list of the greatest mystery movies of all time, Vertigo is number one, which is kind of a mystery. You know what I mean? Like even categorically, that's not the same thing as there are suspects and we're picking a suspect or whatever. That's mm-hmm. th- that is more about twists than it is about a whodunit. Um, so just in general, I still feel like we're waiting for that. Speaking really of, excellent Agatha Christie mystery with the perfect ending. Like Witness for the Prosecution. That's a, a, an interesting ending to a whodunit. You know, speaking of Hitchcock, now that I think about it, Barry's character reminds me so much of the two lead characters in Rope. Yes, and, very much so. Right. But those characters are committing a murder because they want to commit a murder and get away with it. It's the thrill of it. Like this, this is what they're doing. And they invite all these people to the dinner parties to, so that they can get off on getting away with this murder. And there is none of that in Barry Keoghan in Saltburn. Like, you don't get the sense that he is, is he getting off on getting away with murder? Because after all the murders happen, there's no aftermath where there seems to be an investigation or anyone trying to lay the blame at him. You know, they just sort of happen. And then we go right next to the other murder. And also the final scene where he's dancing naked to the Sophie Ellis Baxter song, something about that felt like they just tacked on like a, a crazy music video to the end of the movie that was supposed to be titillating to us. Meanwhile, again, if the, the whole point of the movie to me is he's psycho, so what? Like, oh, okay, he was a crazy person. Like, I don't get anything from that. It doesn't inspire the mind. I got a few things from that that inspired the mind. <laughs> oh, good lord. <laughs> he looked great. He does have a sick body, I will say. Yes. Yeah. But also, we are supposed to look at him eyeing Jacob Elordi as this, you know, the hottest man in the world. And he's, like, obsessed with him. And he's supposed to be this ugly, nerdy dork. Barry is hot as fuck in this movie. <laughs> I will say he's hot in a different way. Jacob Elordi looks like like Gregory Peck. He's like an, a screen icon looking person. That's fair, but he does have muscles, okay? He's been working yeah. out at the dog pound, too. That is a problem with movies these days is the people who are supposed to be like everyday folks still have like these wild CrossFit bodies. And I want to point out, like I said, Todd Haynes knows how to make movies. Right. Charles Melton in that film... Um, which, by the way, he just won the Gotham Award for right, Outstanding yeah. Supporting Performance. I'm so glad he's getting accolades for that amazing performance in May-December. Um, 
he gained weight for that film because obviously he had just come off of Riverdale and he looked like a stud who was on a CW (laughs) TV show. Everybody on Uh, that show looks like Christian Bale (laughs) and the machinist. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but you look at him in May, December and he looks believable as this character. He's not there with abs and pecs and looking like he, you know, goes to CrossFit every day. Right, right, right. No, he has to, he, and he's also sort of styled like the the real life Billy Falau from the Mary Kay yeah. the Torno story. So if he were suddenly like a jacked Riverdale looking superstar, it wouldn't make any sense. Anyway, this is all to say that I actually do not hate Salt. It Park. was too. It was too entertaining to be hateable. Other yeah. than the ending is extremely unsatisfying, given what leads up to it. Which is the same thing I'll say about Promising Young Woman. I gagged. I gagged mm-hmm. in both films. At the end of the film, I was like, huh? What did I watch? <laughs> That's just During it, the film, I was like, what did I watch? To be honest, because the, the entire third act of Saltburn, I'm sitting there like, girl, what are we doing here? And that I, I is think, when the fun stopped. I think you also put your finger on what people are reacting to because these are both of these movies are um, bent on gagging you. And mm-hmm. when you are then supposed to reflect on that a little bit later, it can feel a little bit like you were shortchanged. Like it was just like a, a, a you got a jump scare as opposed to a thrill, you know. And they also rely on transgression uh, in relation to societal issues that are very deep and serious. Promising Young Woman is about rape and sexual assault. And this movie is about... um homosexuality and class and race for five seconds. Uh, so you, you you expect there to be something else in the transgression here. You expect mm-hmm. a zig when there's a zag, but none of that happens. And it all feels very much, I skimmed the book and gave a book report um, that morning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That said, we do need more movies that have that provide movie star performances. So if we can get yeah. more the more Jacob Alordi type roles to people out there who like charm us and um and I think what's behind what's behind those eyes, you know, get invested the way you would get invested in like a performance from Cary Grant or something. That yes. I'm excited about. And also gives us a sexy press tour, you know? Precisely. I love right. the press tour between Alordi and Kyogen. And we're gearing up for a new one with Paul Meskel and uh, Andrew Scott. And honestly, another movie with really great performances from everybody involved, Claire Foy and also Jamie Bell. That um, is a movie that angers me. But we'll I get to that eventually. I, I, it seems like a polarizing movie. I cannot believe I have not seen it yet. It's one that all my friends have seen in various screenings. Someone is keeping me out. They must be frightened. Anyway. Homophobic. That's how I feel. all right when we're back keep it and we're back for our favorite segment of the episode it's keep it lewis yes it's been two weeks right you must have some furor in you you know what i'm upset about um something new and surprising I'm kidding. It's the Barbra Streisand memoir. I'm still going through it. <laughs> Guys, I'm listening to the audiobook. In, as you know, it's 48 hours long. I am on hour, I believe, 27. That is so many hours. And I'm still I told like, you, five-eighths of the way through it. Yes. No, but I can't do that. I need to hear all of the crackle in Barbara's voice and the way she <laughs> like, takes her time to be like, and I was so disappointed. 
Things like that. I need that. <laughs> I'm just going to pick one moment in the uh, memoir that upset me. And by the way, I am completely mm. radicalized Team Barbara. All of her decisions are golden. Everything she does is fabulous. Um, I'm completely locked into her decision making, which she is obsessed with explaining to you. Okay. During the filming of Hello, Dolly, the year is 1969. The director is Gene Kelly. It's not a movie she should be in because she's like one third the age of Dolly Levi. She should not be in this film. <laughs> Lo and behold, during the movie, she is, of course, you know, in a bit of a, you know, radical 60s way, is kind of insistent on in implementing her creative decisions alongside the director and like offering ideas and uh, Gene Kelly seems to be entertaining them for a while. And then all of the sudden, out of nowhere, her co-star, Walter Matthau, blows up and says, who the fuck are you to be, like, ma making these decisions, trying to, like, uh, you know, control this movie? And he says, quote, unquote, I have more talent in my farts than you do in your whole body. Uh, something like that. And Barbara, by the way, can't even say the word fart. She finds it so offensive, which, by the way, slay. I hate that word, too. I hate having having said it now. Yes. But anyway, um, she she's the interesting case of, like, she is not egotistical, even though she is bent on achieving a vision she has in her head all the time. She responds to him and says, what are you doing? I have no idea what you're, why you're, you're coming at me this way. And she eventually gets him to admit that he is friends with Sidney Chaplin, the son of Charlie Chaplin, who was her co-star on stage in the original Funny Girl on Broadway. And Barbara didn't want to have a relationship with him. And Sidney Chaplin eventually on stage during Funny Girl would whisper things like bitch to her while they were performing in the show. And Walter Matthau was like, well, you broke his heart. And she explained to him, like, as I'm giving this performance in Funny Girl, this guy is like trying to sabotage me, giving probably the greatest performance in the history of Broadway, right? Like number one. Yeah. Um, and so it's just like the fact that she could retell that story and just be like, this happened to me and not like burst into tears because it's like, well, here is a conspiracy of men working against you as you are mounting the greatest film musical career that ever was. Um, I just want to say fuck Walter Matthau. Fuck his Oscar for the fucking fortune cookie in 1966. What a piece of shit. That should have been George Siegel's year for Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. All four of them should have had Oscars for that. Um, anyway, it's like the idea. And also, bitch, the idea that you have more talent than Barbara Streisand. Go to hell, motherfucker. You're the grumpiest old man, motherfucker. That is all your talent. It seems like he was a grumpy young man, too. Yes, right. Any age. Yes. <laughs> and Charlie Chaplin's son. Sir. Right. As you know, he went on to big things. Fuck you, bitch. You went on to nothing. <laughs> I think that I always go back to, you know, Best Revenge is Your Paper from yeah. Beyonce. Not just paper, but also your reverence and, you know, your body of work, right? And is Walter Matthau dead now? He quite is, yes. Yes, oh, yeah. but I made you sure know, of it. You know, right up on the set of Grumpy Old Men 2, there's probably, because there, he's probably thinking about that Barbara moment. And he's right. like, my farts smell <laughs> disgusting. Yeah. And Barbara and definitely has more talent than <laughs> them. Yeah. Because I, I, I'm like, <laughs> we're in our mid-30s and you think about fucking things that you did 10 years ago and they haunt you. Um... Imagine doing that to Barbara fucking Streisand and then 
you're still alive like 40 years later, 40, 50 years later, and having to see who she became and knowing what you ended up as? No, right. I, I, I mean, the interesting thing about Barbara Streisand is she's not vengeful. She's so committed to her vision that I think a lot of the time the perspectives of other people, even though she thinks she's entertaining them, she kind of doesn't understand where other people are coming from. It's a little bit of like a denseness she has as opposed to an egotism that I think aids her and made her made her um, intractable when it came to like executing her vision. Also, that that is such a bitch ass vendetta. You yeah. broke my friend's heart. No, that's, right. That's, that is that is hardly a reason to embark on revenge against someone. I, I'll give you reasons for revenge. Okay. Yeah. If it, if, even if it, maybe if it had been your father, you yeah, know, right? Like, no, just some guy you play poker with. Yeah. Right. You broke my father's heart. He committed suicide, and now you're going to destroy this bitch and her daughter. I don't know, something like that. That's revenge. Okay. <laughs> you a fan of Aaron Spelling? That's what it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan of Aristotle. Okay. Of Seneca. Yeah. Aristophanes. <laughs> oh, yeah, those buddies. Okay, anyway, that's my Barbara rant for the day. Ira, what's your keep it? Uh, my keep it... My keep it goes to Netflix. Because oh. unfortunately, as much as I talked shit about doing a real-life version of Squid Game as a competition reality TV show, because... The whole point of Squid Game, you know, is fighting against capitalism and um, everyone dies in it, too. Uh, and how are you going to translate that to a reality TV show for this big-ass corporation that's mm-hmm. a little evil? Let me tell you something, Lewis. They did it. I have to say I've been watching it, and I'm <laughs> it on board. It is so good. Let's play it a Squid Game. So play a Squid Game. Good. Do you want love or you want squid? I'm in. <laughs> Social is going to have a field day with that. (laughs) (laughs) I think I saw that in a tweet once. I don't mean to claim that as mine, but every time I hear the word squid game, I immediately put it into the uh, uh, melody of love game. I love this show. First of all, it's produced uh, to death. Yeah. (laughs) It's produced to, it's it's like, it's produced down. Yeah. Uh, And the concept of them having, you know, the original 400 and something plus people playing the game and then they're left with less than 200 after that first challenge that red light green light with that Mm. big ass statue bitch um shout out to them yeah because they got a bunch of people to come into this game but then they probably sent them off with a peanut butter sandwich right it sounds like i mean i'm sure they were like quarantined or whatever for a lot of time before filming began too um, so that totally sucks that all those people lost. I have to say, I, I, even watching the first challenge, I'm like, obviously they want to eliminate a, peop- a lot of people right away because it's like the original TV show. But how mm. did they arrange it so that just enough people are eliminated and not too many? I definitely think that there were people who were maybe slightly moving, who they decided to spare. Because it definitely, if you you know, do casting for this and you do pre-interviews and people are in quarantine you could tell us someone's going to be a very good character on the show right and you're like well let's give them a little leeway here 
And I also feel like there aren't too many wide shots of the people playing in that game. So you're not yeah. really getting an honest sense of who's not moving when it turns red light anyway. But the casting in this, done, but former casting director for Big Brother, these are the type of people that you wish were playing Big Brother. Especially right. this fucking season. 432, that frat boy asshole who basically threatens to beat someone up outside of the game for calling him a frat boy. You got the mother and son on the show who are iconic. Yeah, um, she is great. Mm-hmm. Lorenzo, uh, the Italian faggot on the show. The, the biggest shocking moment of the series was when they cut to him in that uh, confessional and he was wearing that flower crochet dress and the matching hat. <laughs> Love him. This other messy gay dash. There are just some really fun cast members on this show. And I will say, the women are the best part about it. Because I don't mm-hmm. know how far you've gotten. But once you get to episode four or five, like some new women emerge in the show. And they're amazing. I think what the show is doing really well, too, with there being so many fucking cast members, is that they latch you on to really interesting people early on, but that person might die and be eliminated that episode, or they might continue on. But once batches of interesting people die, then new people emerge yeah. who are going to be central points of the later episodes. I know it's it's a little bit like Big Brother in that way, where you yeah. know you you get wrapped up in a, a loud eye catching contestant early on, and then of course inevitably that person is eliminated since they've drawn so much attention to themselves, and then you somebody else who's just like slinking around in the background, getting like fifth in all the physical challenges, is like a major contender suddenly. So you start paying attention to them. Yeah. Um, just shout out to that girl who did really well in Battleship too, like who came in and Rihanna? was like. <laughs> the Navy. <laughs> um, Battleship is also just a game that I've never really played. The so I probably would have done bad game? in that challenge. Yeah, I've never actually played Battleship, the game. It's barely a game of skill. I would, you, you literally just randomly place um, ships on a, a grid and then you start guessing True, points to shoot but at. But the girl who won for her team. If you're, I guess if you're a math um, person and very analytical in that way, you know, like she was saying that like every human always picks C3, you know, and she knows like you can mm. predict numbers that people will pick. So I guess it's a fun game if you like predicting um, what humans do in game situations. Particularly um, sort of while chess. they're trying to be random. Yeah, right. Right. Mm-hmm. Like chess, you know, when you, when you sort of know that like, oh, people always you know, do their pawn out on this move, you know, something mm-hmm. like that. No, I'll, I will be watching this whole show. But I, Immediately when I started it, I knew it was edited to the point where, like, you can't turn away, you know, just, yeah. the, I'm sure it's been play tested a hundred thousand times. It has that feeling of, like, sensational, entertaining. It's like in, watching yeah. Instagram stories. I can't stop watching them. It's that kind of entertainment. Yeah, it's really, really great show. So I'm enjoying it. Um, more episodes are dropping literally tomorrow, so I will be focused on great, great plan to drop it like right on Thanksgiving too. And I feel like the slow rollout of the episodes instead of dropping them out at once, um, is to its benefit because 
definitely got a lot of texts from people, from friends of mine this weekend being like, are you watching Squid Game? Because mm-hmm. it's kind of really right. good. No one's got anything to do, so they just binge things like this. Yeah. We need to rank mm-hmm. once uh, in the future greatest holiday drops. Because remember like remember that like Christmas we all sat and had to watch Don't Look Up? Or that time like we all watched Making a Murderer? Like, b- but we do. We do end up watching these things, even though like Don't Look Up, I would say, mostly sucks. Making a Murderer, pretty good. Bridgerton, really Bridgerton, good. Bridgerton, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, although I did not watch any more of it. I was actually talking with my friend about this recently. I loved Bridgerton. I think the first season is fucking excellent. But also, after the first season, I said, that's enough Bridgerton for me. Whistle down and out, you said. <laughs> and that's our episode. <laughs> uh, thank you again to Todd Haynes for being here with us and for being an excellent fucking interview and filmmaker. Why um, don't more people just start talking about Peggy Lee to us? I am begging you <laughs> to have a little Peggy Lee insight when you come into the studio. Uh, I hope he gets to make that movie. No fucking joke. I, I mean, I want to cast it myself, but he has legendary casting people. I'm sure they'll do a great job. Uh, and we will see you next week. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Chris Lord. And our associate producer is Malcolm Whitfield. Our executive producers are Ira Madison III and Louis Vertel. This episode was recorded and mixed by Evan Sutton. Thank you to our digital team, Megan Patzel and Rachel Gajewski, and to Matt DeGroote and David Tolls for production support every week. And as always, Keep It is recorded in front of a live studio audience. Is your dating life in the dumps? Are you tired of endless swiping on dating apps, awkward first dates, or disappointing hookups? Well, are you, Lewis? Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't love it. (laughs) Well, comedian Nicole Byer knows this all too well. She's been single for decades and can't figure out why. On her podcast, Why Won't You Date Me?, she's on a quest to find out how to suck less at dating. She interviews comedians and celebrities about their love lives while commiserating over dating horror stories and hookups gone wrong. I've been on it. Oh, and you are not an authority on this matter, so she must be desperate. (laughs) She's really desperate. She's really desperate. At least she admits it. The show features guests like... Conan O'Brien, Whitney Cummings, Lacey Mosley, who helped me when my Twitter account was hacked recently, and I got it back thanks to her wisdom. Thanks, Lacey. (laughs) Paul F. Tompkins, Ron Funches, Trixie Mattel, Jamila Jamil, Tiffany Haddish, Solomon Giorgio, whom we love, and Rachel Bloom, whom we also love, plus interviews with professional dating coaches and relationship therapists providing you with the secrets to a successful relationship. Whether you're single, dating, or in a relationship, there's something for everyone. New episodes release every Friday. Listen to Why Won't You Date Me with Nicole Byer wherever you get your podcasts. The guests of this podcast are so helpful. I mean, Lacey helped you and Jamila Jamil helped me when I was kidnapped by ISIS last week. (laughs) She got right on the phone. (laughs) She jumped out of her legendary chair and said, let me help.